Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. How do you counsel a self-righteous person? That is the question that I want to interact with. My friend Doug sent in a lengthier question, and I will read it in just a moment. But as you can might imagine, this is a complicated question, and he adds a couple of layers of complexity to it. But this is something that is important to all of us for two reasons. One, we all struggle with self-righteousness. Historically speaking, I am the most self-righteous person that I've ever met, and so I I have to hold this loosely and with humility and sobriety because in many ways I'll be talking about myself. But number two, we know self-righteous people and well, since it's a part of our Adamic wiring, it is everybody that we know to varying degrees. Some people have really have really fought the battle and appropriated God's grace, and they have overcome or they are greatly overcoming the temptations to self-righteousness. But then there are other people who are ensconced in self-righteousness, and some people like it that way, or that's what they want you to believe. And so they have no intentions of changing, and that's the type of person that my friend Doug is asking me about. How do you counsel a self-righteous person? And so that's what I want to talk to you about. I will share with you the full question that Doug wrote in in just a moment, but I do want you to know Uh, We do have supporting members, and they have a private space on our website where they can ask any question that they want, and that's fantastic. But we don't want everybody to be a supporting member because that's not possible and it's not realistic. And so we realize that there are several billion people out there uh, that do have questions, and we want to serve them as well, not just our supporting community community. And so I want you to be like Doug, not a supporting member, but yet you have questions. And if there's something that we can help you with, we would love to. And so all you have to do is write in and say, hey, Rick, would you mind working this up into a podcast? I would really like to Uh, have some answers to this if you can help. I just did that with the very last episode that someone uh, wrote in and asked a question, and I'm going to do that here. By the way, I am Rick Thomas. For those of you who have stumbled on our ministry, uh, we have a coffee shop. It's called Life Over Coffee. Uh, Life Over Coffee is what it's called, and the address is lifeovercoffee.com. And so think of it as a big sanctification center where people can come and just do life over coffee as they interact with each other about whatever concerns or challenges that might be in their lives. We believe, I believe, that that any two Christians, two or more Christians, can come together and do life over coffee, have conversations that lead to transformation. And I trust that this Uh, This here will help you, and perhaps you can share this podcast or the video or the content, the uh, show notes with a friend, and you can have one of those conversations that lead to transformation. Also, this is the fall of the year. We're now wrapping up 
the end of the year and this last quarter of the year is the number one time when people support Christian nonprofit 501c3 ministries. And so I would love for you to consider and to pray about supporting our ministry with whatever you can. We do have a donor who is willing to give us $50,000 if another person or two or three, but at least one other person would match his and his wife's kind gift. And so I would like for you to pray about that. Would you ask the Father to bring one super generous person who has the ability and they would match my friend so that he will give his, they will give theirs, and maybe two or three others would like to join in or maybe even with lesser amounts. I would really appreciate it because this is the time of the year that determines what we'll do next year because the primary uh, time where our finances come in is the end of the year. And so for the majority of you, I just want you to do one thing. Please pray and ask God to move the hearts who have the ability to underwrite our ministry because by the grace of God, we're going to continue to give our resources away. That is our business model. We give it away freely, but of course, we can only do that as folks underwrite our ministry financially. All right, so this is episode 435. I have a complicated question that Doug wrote in. The the cliff note question is, how do you counsel a a self-righteous person? But let me share with you uh, exactly what Doug asked me. He said, quote, I am thinking of a person who is not concerned with the kingdom of God and is more concerned with a kingdom of self, especially a person who does not have a gospel-centered motive. And then he lists three things about them. He says that they have a lot of pride, and they're not easy to teach. They want a certain way, and they do not consider God's will. And then Doug sums up with the third characteristic with the question, How do you counsel a self-righteous person? So it is a self-righteous person who is unteachable, and then also they are full of pride. So I want to deal with all three of those. As I said at the onset, it's not just how do you counsel a self-righteous person, but there are some levels of complexity here. And as you heard from Doug, two of those levels of complexity is that this self-righteous person is full of pride and they're not teachable. And so I want to help this person. How would you do that? How would you counsel this individual? Well, the first thing that I would ask is, does this person want someone to counsel them? I'm not sure that they would even come to counseling if these things are true. I have counseled this type of person before. I mean, I have met a lot of these individuals in my counseling career, and in almost every case, none of them wanted to come to counseling. None of them wanted counsel. And if they did show up in my office, they came because somebody was making them come. Somebody was was mandating it. Sometimes a church will will say that you have to receive counseling as part of uh, the restoration process that is going on with you. 
Sometimes parents will bring a teenager in, and those are so difficult because they don't want to be there. And then other times a spouse will just lay down the ultimatum and say, you are going to counseling. And so I have counseled self-righteous people who are full of pride and unteachable, but they didn't want to be there. And that's why I'm asking the question, does this person really want you uh, to counsel them? More than likely, they don't. And, And you have this assessment of them, which is accurate, but if you think you're going to get them in a counseling context, well, maybe I hope what I have to share here with you will help to not only help them, but help them by taking perhaps another direction than traditional counseling. Now, I am assuming that you're asking how to help this person who is not looking for help, and that's why I say that do they really want counseling. So you're going to have three challenges that you will have to overcome if you do try to counsel this individual using the traditional counseling setting. Number one, counseling is for those who want to change, not those who don't. Counseling operates under an assumption, kind of like a medical doctor. You go to the medical doctor because you want that person's opinion, their diagnosis, their analysis. You want some solutions. You're you're vested in this, and you want that doctor to give you something to help you to change your physicality. Well, that's the underwriting assumption with counseling, that this person wants to be here. And as I said earlier, Those people that are, as you have described, they don't want to be in counseling. And so it's going to be like pulling teeth. Uh, It's going to be very hard. Now, there's a way of doing it, and I'm going to explain that in just a moment. But counseling is for those who want to change, not those who don't. And so you really have to keep that uh, in your mind. Number two, counseling is a conversation about change. So this, this guy will need more connecting points that are not always talking about him changing. Because if you have him coming to a counseling session week in and week out, and he's full of pride, he's unteachable, and he's self-righteous, he's looking down on you anyway, condescending. And every time you meet with him, you're trying to motivate him to change. Eventually, uh, the tension will be so great that that he will not want to hear it anymore. And you're going to run out of ways of telling him the same thing over and over again. If you bring somebody into counseling that doesn't want to change, and that is the only context that you have uh, to talk to him, well... It's going to, you're going to get into a, a traffic jam eventually, and, and you're not going to be able to go anywhere because he's going to resist everything that you say. And you're only saying one thing, even though you're saying it 20 different ways, you need to change. And so counseling is a conversation about change. That's what counseling's for for the person who wants to change. And so they're in it and they want to hear all that you have to say. But this guy needs more connecting points. Uh, You need to meet him outside of a counseling office where you're building a relational bridge with him, doing other things than just always talking about his soul. 
I mean, every time you go to the dentist, you know that there's going to be something happening to your teeth and gums inside of your mouth. And so you're not going to go every week to the dentist because you know what you're going to get and it's going to be painful many times. And so you go only sporadically. But you need to meet with this person many times, but it has to be in different contexts than just one context with one driven point. You need to change because you're self-righteous. That won't last long. Number three, counseling also depends on God changing him. You see, the counselor can only water and plant. The counselor is not the one that grants repentance. God does that, as Paul told Timothy. And the problem with that is that counseling is a window of time let's say eight sessions or 12 sessions, let's say six weeks or three months or four months, but it is a window of time. Will God grant repentance in that window? He may or he may not. In my experience, change happens more times than not once the counseling is over, outside of the counseling season or the counseling window. So there's three considerations for you. Counseling is for folks who want to change. Counseling is a conversation about change, and so you need more context to talk about other things to build a relational bridge. Number three, counseling depends on God changing him. God is the one that grants repentance. And so you may have a truncated window here, a short season, and you need more time with this person. So who is this individual? Well, Doug says that he is a Christian. Now that's something that's important uh, to uh, know as you're interacting with him because, well, there's several things, but one of the things I'll mention right now, if he is a Christian, then he has an ally inside, the Spirit of God, who can bring conviction. And so the counselor, Doug in this case, has someone, uh, has a mole on the inside. I don't mean that in a disparaging way, talking about the precious Trinity, but he has someone on the inside operating inside this person if he is a Christian. But he says he is a Christian with a lot of pride, and he's self-righteous, and he's difficult to teach. And so I do recommend that you engage this person outside of traditional counseling context so it's not always directed and pressing, and you're always making the same point. I would appeal to you to create diverse context and situations to build that relational bridge to him, because if you have a strong relationship bridge, then you can truck some pretty significant truth across that relational bridge. And if again, if the relational bridge is fortified, it will, it will withstand uh, what you have to carry across to him. And if he is unteachable and full of pride and self-righteous, uh, and self-righteous well, then you are going to have some big, heavy truth that you're going to try to truck across that bridge. And so you want to fortify it, and you fortify it by creating all those connection points, by creating all of those contexts. Sunday a.m., the church meeting, that would be an obvious one. I mean, if he is a Christian and he's showing up at your church meeting on Sunday morning, then you have four times a, a, a month. You know, theoretically, you have 50, 52 times a year where that those are 50 connection points with him on Sunday morning, not necessarily to talk deep, but just to slap him on the back and talk about the game and tell a joke and, and talk about Jesus and the Bible too. And so there's 50 connection points. You can create small, uh, small talk context as well. 
Remember, small talk leads to deep talk, and so you want to go from shallow to the deep water. And so you can have small talk, talk contexts like uh, coffee meetups. Hey, let's get together at the coffee shop and just shoot the breeze. You can also have small group meetings if he's part of your church and you have small groups. Maybe he's in your small group. If you meet twice a month in small group, well, then you've just added 24 more contact points to those 50 uh, that you have on Sunday morning plus the coffee coffee shop meetups. It could be church family fun days, especially events of the church. It could be hospitality as you invite him over. What I'm saying here is you want serious and non-serious connection points, and counseling is typically a serious connection point, and that's where you can run into that, that uh, traffic jam with him always saying the same thing every week when we come together. I want to pull that tooth this Tuesday. We'll pull the next tooth next Tuesday, and after a while, you will not want to meet with your dentist, and so you want to have non-serious connection points, and your reason is you're trying to build a relational bridge. All right, so you say that he has three problems. He's full of pride. He's unteachable. He's self-righteousness. So let's pull those apart and take a look at them individually, and then I have a few other things to say once we kind of unpack these three special categories that make up who this individual is primarily. So number one, Doug says that that he's full of pride. Now, you're going to have to unpack what you mean by pride because pride is a bucket word that all sin fits in. Think of any sin in the world. It is a form of pride. And so one of the things, one of, a good way of thinking about pride, there, there's multiple ways, but this is one way to think of it that would be helpful, is that pride is like a, the fertile soil uh, in a container, and then everything that grows out of that soil, that's the manifestation of pride. And so when you say that a person is full of pride, that's accurate, but I, I do not know what that means, honestly. I mean, I have a, a directional category. I know which direction we're going, but I don't know the specifics. And so when you say he has a lot of pride, if you're going to help him, then you will have to tease that out. And so you will have to determine the specifics of his pride, his sins, his preferences, his hang-ups, his mistakes, his Adamic deficits. And so you want to look at uh, his Adamic deficits and to see specifically because his manifestations of pride will probably be different than yours, will probably be different than mine. I am a proud person, but it acts out in a different way. And so when you say that he is proud, you want to get into the specifics. And so what forms of pride do you see? Fear, cynicism, boasting, reputation management, stubbornness, rationalizer. He probably is a rationalizer as he tries to soothe his conscience, especially if he's a Christian. If he's a Christian, then the Spirit of God, you're the ally that's in him, his internal voice, his inner voice as well, colluding together with the Bible that is mixed into that. And so his conscience is going to be blaring. And in order for him to reduce the soul noise in his conscience and to live with himself while holding on to his pride, he's going to have to rationalize 
rationalize a lot of stuff. He's going to have to make it right. And for those of you who are listening to my podcast, I'm doing that in air quotes because ultimately he can't make that right. And so you say he's full of pride, so you need to really tease that out into the many different manifestations. Number two, you say that he is self-righteous. Self-righteousness is a form of pride, and so that is a specific form of pride. And so that's good. That's one of the manifestations of pride. But here's a big caution with self-righteousness. It's hard to help a self-righteous person because there's no grace for them. Now, let me carefully unpack that. You see, God gives us a righteousness when he regenerates us. It's an alien righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. It's the great exchange. He takes our sin and he makes us righteous. We receive this otherworldly alien righteousness when we're born again. But we can only receive that alien righteousness through the door of humility. Jesus said that only the sick you know, cry out for the physician, only the needy, only the broken. But a person who is self-righteous, they have created their own righteousness, and that is the pillar upon which they stand. And that's why I say there's no grace for this person, because he doesn't want it, he doesn't need it, he rejects it, he has chosen to build his own uh, righteousness And so this really puts him in a perplexing situation, and you need to understand that the conditions for grace are sickness and neediness and brokenness, or biblically, spiritually speaking, we're talking about humility. Now, we know that he's not self-righteous. We know that it is a facade, that, that it is a house of cards, that he is stubbornly or maybe ignorantly, maybe both. He's playing a game. He's playing a game because he's uninterested in change, and so he's created this reputation that's righteous, and, and I have what I need, and I don't need that because he's uninterested in submitting to God. He's uninterested in walking through that kind of humility to receive the alien righteousness that we receive from Christ. So he's rejecting God, and he's built this facade that is really just a house of cards. God would give him grace, but because of his pride, God is opposing him. As you read in James 4, 6, he gives grace to the humble and he opposes the proud. And because he's operating in pride and he's resisting God, God actually is opposing him. And so he's in an untenable spot. He's between a rock and a hard place, and it's only going to get worse for him. If you want to read what Jesus thought about the Pharisees, I recommend Matthew 23, the entire chapter. And you learn what Christ thinks about those people who have that greater than, better than attitude, and those are the Pharisees. Self-righteousness competes against the alien righteousness that we receive from Christ. And so what has to happen here is there has to be a simultaneous cooperative work with God between him and God, where he de-elevates himself, begins to uh, act out in humility as God provides grace 
uh, for him. Now, there's mystery in what I just said, but those two things have to happen simultaneously, and it has to be a cooperative work. And so that is something that you have to uh, pray about and, and ask God to give you insight so that you can help him get to that place, which leads to the third characteristic that Doug said about him. He said that he's full of pride. We want to be specific. He did give one specific. Number two, he said he's self-righteous. Good. And then number three, he said he's unteachable. It reminds me of the saying, you may have heard, they say you can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make him drink. That's not true, actually. You can put salt in his oats. And if you put salt in his oats, it will start to create a thirst. And a thirst is what you want, because if anyone is thirsty for Christ, they will come and they will receive a different kind of water that will totally revolutionize and refresh his soul. And so when you say he's unteachable, that's what it appears to be on the surface. But this, I want to work this out just a little bit because it's essential that you understand this. Because in one sense, nobody is really unteachable. There could be some people that have just so hardened their heart. They're so case-hardened that they could be impenetrable. It could be that they have exchanged the truth of God so much so often, and they're so hard that they've seared their consciences that God has given them over to the lust of the flesh. But generally speaking, nobody is, you, you will there's very few people that will be truly unteachable. But as a counselor, as a disciple maker, you want to learn how to put salt in an individual's oats. And you want to be sneaky about it. You want to be subtle about it. Your objective is to study, the, uh, sneaky, I mean in a biblical sense, not in a sinful sense. But your objective is to study his soul. And so now you have a unique individual. You have, have unpacked these many manifestations of pride. You recognize the dilemma that he's in, that he's in a warfare against God, and God is opposing him. Uh, he's self-righteous, so he has a greater than, better than attitude, and so you know some things about him. And so as you interact with him in these multifaceted contexts, you will begin to study his soul. That's what the word psychology means, psyche, soul. Logos is the study of or the word concerning the soul. And so you want to study this person's specific soul. Now, fortunately, you have the soul book to do that. In 2 Timothy 3.16, God breathed out and he gave us the perfect psychology book and it's called the Bible. And as you study the Bible and run your friend through the filter, through the screen of the Bible, you'll begin to pull out different Different things that will help you to learn about him, uh, uh, about him with specificity and with uniqueness. Now you have an advantage here. As Christians, we, we have the soul book. We have the psychology book. God created the soul in 2-7 of Genesis, and he created the book that studies the soul in 3-16 of 2 Timothy. And so you put the soul and the Bible together, his soul and the Bible together, and you study him, and you can really understand his condition. You can understand psychology, biblically speaking. And so you know what is already in him. You know in some ways how he struggles and why he struggles. And the reason you know that is because 
we're all cut from the same Adamic cloth. We're all like him in some way. And so there's similarity that's going to intersect between you and him and him and everyone else. And so because we have this insight into the human psyche and because everybody came from the same Adamic cloth, you have inside information on him. And so you want to understand what causes him to struggle. What are some of his weaknesses, his fears, his insecurities? Why does he try to hide and protect and get into reputation management and try to exalt himself and reject God? What were some of the shaping influences? What are some of the motivations? These are questions that you want to ask as you diagnose his soul and you ask God to give you insight into him. And then you want to create a conversation many conversations that appeal to his inner longings and his fears and frustrations. Even the most hardened person has fears, longings, and frustrations. And you know that because, again, he's no different from the rest of us. And so as you get insight into him, you start salting his oats, not in a a clearly defined counseling session where you're always pulling a tooth every week, but in these multifaceted opportunities where you're connecting with him, having deep talks and and fun talks and shallow talks and serious talks and, and relationship talks and sports talks and whatever. But through that, you have an agenda. And you're not deviating from that agenda, even though uh, you're doing it in many different contexts, in many depths of conversation. Let me give you six things that you already know about him. And this, is, this, this applies to anybody. You know that he doesn't want to suffer because you don't want to suffer and neither do I. And so how does that, how does that apply to him? Well, one of the reasons that he is proud and self-righteous because he doesn't want to suffer, so he feels insecure inside, and so he develops this representative of himself that's elevated. You know it's a house of cards, it's a facade, but he has elevated himself so people will approve him, love him. People will give him attention. Uh, he can uh, receive his, the, the love that he craves. His approval drive can be stroked many times as they see how great he is, uh, as he promotes his representative and, and comes across as a certain kind of person. But as you look through that, what is he trying to do? He doesn't want to suffer, so he's building a frame. He's building a, a lifestyle, and he's trying to uh, control that and manage that because he's like you. None of, us are, none of us want to suffer. So number two, he's insecure. He struggles with fear. Number three, he's self-righteous, and we all are to varying degrees. Uh, number four, he wants to be in control. I mentioned it earlier. He's got to control this representative uh, that he has. He doesn't want to trust God. He is volitionally rejecting God, meaning I don't want God controlling my life. I want to control my life. And so he is resisting God, and you want to figure out why. Number five, he likes comfort. What are his idols, and why does he enjoy these comfort idols? What do they provide for him? He loves the comfort of applause. He loves the comfort that the idol of self-righteousness brings to him. Why is that? Get underneath his skin and get into his psyche, his psychology, understanding his soul. He has a sense of shame, number six. And so there are six things that you already know about him. He doesn't want to suffer. He is insecure. He 
is self-righteous. He wants to be in control. He likes comfort, and he has a sense of shame, meaning he wears fig leaves just like Adam does, and he's hiding behind those fig leaves. And so you want to carefully address these things, building that relational bridge all along in a multifaceted context approach so that you can get behind his representative, this carefully crafted image that he has created. And as you get behind his representative and meet the real person that is nothing like what you see, uh, then you will be able to uh, address those things. And uh, uh, you have salt in his oats now, and he will be thirsty for what you have. Let me share four more things that would be helpful as the question is, how do you help a self-righteous person? Here's four more tips. Get him outside the counseling setting. And I've said this before, but there's a little bit of redundancy here, but it is important. Get him outside the counseling setting so you're not always telegraphing your soul care. Get him outside of counseling mode. And that reduces it. That takes the defenses down where he's not putting up some kind of force field because he knows what you're doing because you're telegraphing him. That's why the small talk is very important. And so get him outside counseling mode. Relax. Being a friend. Go play golf or, 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 or whatever. Go, go to a, a sporting event with his kid. You know. So number one, get him outside of a counseling setting so you're not always telegraphing what you're trying to do. Number two, meet in his context, like his home, or going to that baseball game and watching his child play. A person will let down their guard easily, more likely, if it, because they're more comfortable on their own turf. And so you want to meet him on his home turf, and he will be more relaxed because that's what you're after. You're, you want that force field to come down. And so if you're meeting one outside of a counseling context where you're not telegraphing everything, number two, meeting on his home turf or places that he's comfortable being, that will make him more relaxed. Number three, don't make every conversation about counseling. Don't make every conversation about God change and how you need to change. No, laugh a lot. Enjoy being with him. Come up for air. Breathe. Exhale. Don't stay deep all the time with him because he, he hasn't been staying deep for long times, and so he's not good at holding his breath. And so come up for air and let some air out of the room. And then number four, fourth tip. Let him see how the Word of God is profound and relevant in your life. And you can do this in four different ways. Let him see how the Word of God is profound and relevant in your life. You can do it in four different ways. Number one, by the life that you live. Deconstruct his preconceived notions about Christianity. Before I became a Christian, uh, I thought Christians were uh, people that rode bicycles and wore white shirts and black suits and passed out and had a, ba a backpack on their back. I thought they were Mormons. I thought they were Christians. They're all the same. But when I began to meet Christians, it's like, oh, well, you're different than what I thought. And so by the life that you live, as he sees your life in all of these different venues, you'll begin to deconstruct any preconceived notions, faulty notions that he may have. Number two, by how you have fun. He sees your relaxedness. You're not hung up on yourself. You should be the loudest person in the restaurant, appropriately. 
you're not compromising sin, but he sees fun, for example, by how you interact with your spouse and your children and the waiter. We, we have been, or the waitress, and we have been relieved of the greatest problem in life. Our number one problem in life has been resolved at the cross. We have more to rejoice about than any other person in the world. And so as he sees how you have fun, how you enjoy life without compromising and without sinning, not hung up on yourself, by the life you live, by how you have fun, by the order you have, number three, by the order you have. When God's Word invades your soul, it brings you from a chaotic life to a well-ordered one. In the beginning, God spoke into the chaos of this earth, this world, and He brought order out of chaos, and that's what He did for us when He spoke into our lives, when He spoke His Word into our lives and said, Be born again. He brought us from a chaotic state to an ordered state, and he sees your well-ordered, not so structured that there's no spontaneity, but he sees a well-ordered, non-chaotic, non-chaotic life, number three. Number four, by the answers that you uh, give him about life. Your responses are otherworldly. You're deconstructing those preconceived notions, not just by the life you live, but by the words that you provide. One final thing, and I'll wrap up. You cannot be annoyed at this person, but you must always exercise self-control, patience, and affection for him. Read 1 Thessalonians 5.14. The question is, how do you counsel a self-righteous person? I've given you several ideas. If you would like to go through what I just shared with you, go to lifeovercoffee.com episode 435, and it's titled, How Do You Counsel a Self-Righteous Person? And you can read everything I just shared with you. You can watch the video. You can listen to the podcast. If we can serve you, let us know. And please, uh, if you would pray for our fall campaign, if you would just pray that God would continue to underwrite our ministry so that we can continue to give these resources uh, away freely to whosoever will, I would be greatly uh, greatly appreciative uh, if you would do that. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.